Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Master Historian Professor Richard Overy. Professor Overy is Professor of History at the University of Exeter. He is without a doubt one of the leading historians dealing with the subject of the Second World War, and today we're discussing his newest book, Blood and Ruins, The Last Imperial War, 1931 to 1945, published by Viking. Welcome, Professor Overy. Thank you. Professor, uh, what is the thesis of your book? Well, it's a big thesis, uh, but it's essentially really that we've, uh, for a long time, I think, not put the Second World War into a proper context. We focused a lot on the military history of the war. Uh, it's traced usually back to the First World War and the Versailles Settlement at the end of the war and German resentment. Um, and for a long time, I've not been happy with seeing the war in that way. And I've placed it into a quite different context, the context of a long period of violent imperialism from the late 19th century onwards, conducted by all the European powers. Um, and by the 1930s, three powers in particular, resentful that they hadn't got empires big enough, Germany, Japan, and Italy, decided that they would set out on a new imperial path to acquire territory. And their efforts to acquire that territory resulted in the Second World War. What are the, fa- the four main assumptions, as you characterize them, which you base your, your history on? Well, uh, it, it all relates, really, I think, to this imperial question. I mean, I date the conflict from 1931 when the Japanese occupied the seas of Manchuria um, in northern China um, through in fact to post-1945 through to the unravelling of all European empires in the 20 years after the end of the war um, and it seemed to be important that we we fix that chronology differently because otherwise we just have 39 to 45 and we don't 
as a result, put the war properly into, into context. The second thing really was to make sure that we treated the war as a global event. It's quite often treated as a European event, sometimes only a Western European event. And it's very important that it's seen as a global event, which means, in fact, every part of the world, from the Aleutian Islands to Madagascar to the Caribbean to the Middle East, uh, apart from the you know battle zones in uh, Asia and, and Europe. Um, and by seeing it as, as a global conflict, again, I think that helps us to, to understand the imperial character of uh, war. And thirdly, I wanted to see the war as a mix of different kinds of conflict. It's not just simply the battles on the battlefield, uh, but what I've called civilian wars seem to me to be very important. And the critical thing about this war is that, that millions of civilians work to uh, uh, to uh, preserve themselves, to free themselves, uh, whether in civil defence against bombing, whether in resistance activities, uh, or in civil wars, which broke out in uh, a number of places, you know, Ukraine, Greece, Italy, uh, in which civilians were fighting other civilians. And so I've, I've, I've talked about the Second World War as a, as a number of different kinds of conflict. Sometimes they overlap, sometimes they don't. But if you want a full history of war, I think it's very important that we see it in, that, in, in those terms. And fourthly, well, what I've already said, I wanted to frame the war as an imperial conflict um, and to have something different to say about the Second World War uh, rather than just seeing it simply as a, a set of battles which you know, has an end result. Would it be correct to say that Germany, Japan and Italy adopted policies of expansion in the 1930s due to dissatisfaction with um, Western or, if you like, Allied dominance in the case of Japan, the perceived failures of what historians refer to as Shidahara diplomacy in the 1920s, or in the case of Germany, the perceived failure of Stresemann's policies to fundamentally revise the Versailles Peace Treaty. Yeah, that's exactly the case. I think I made the point in the book that in the 1920s, after the First World War, all three states, you know, did make an effort to remain within the existing global order, to, you know, or in the German case, to reintegrate Germany into that order, joining the League of Nations, for example, in 1926. Um, but it was really the economic slump, I think, which persuades them that, you know, in the end, there's no place for them in a world dominated by Western capitalism, American, British, French. Uh, they've got to build their own empire, uh, their own economic bloc, uh, and find ways of protecting the interests of their own population. Uh, and, you know, it's really a politics of resentment, a strong sense that, you know, that the Western world has let them down. Would it be correct to state that you attribute more agency in the origins of the Sino-Japanese War to Chiang Kai-shek than most historians? Well, I, I mean, I think to understand the war that's going on in, in China, uh, we need to see Chiang Kai-shek, of course, as a, as a strong anti-imperialist. I mean, he's taken up the, uh, the, the position you know, in China from the end of the 19th century uh, that really it was the West that was a problem for China and that somehow or other um, you had to uh, establish a China that was independent of the West. And then suddenly, Chiang Kai-shek found himself attacked by Japan, another imperial power, 
Um, and, you know, he, he has a great deal of difficulty with that. He finally um, engineers the war with Japan in 1937, um, but he's very uncertain about you know, what the West will do, if the West will do anything. And of course, the West doesn't do anything. Uh, you know, Chiang Kai-shek fights his war uh, right through 1945, more or less on his own. Why did the Sino-Japanese War not go as the Japanese army expected? Well, the Japanese army expected a blitzkrieg. Um, they thought the Chinese army was poorly armed, poorly trained, had low morale. Um, it would be easy, in fact, to achieve what they wanted. Um, in fact, it already pushed into northern China in the years before 1937. They dominated more than a third of China by that stage. So it just seemed a matter of course that they would occupy uh, Beijing, uh, destroy the um, uh, nationalist capital at Nanjing, um, and then the Chinese would give up. Um, they didn't. They didn't because it's you know obvious thing to say. China is a big place. Uh, a bit like the Russians in, uh, uh, in the Second World War with Barbarossa. You know, the Chinese have you know, a lot of territory to retreat to. And the further the Japanese moved into China, the more they got bogged down. Logistics were difficult, the population was hostile. Um, it, it, the geography uh, was also unkind to uh, the Japanese armies. And there were plenty of reasons why conquering China uh, was an ambition beyond what the Japanese army could do. Uh, would it be true to say that you do not agree with Gerhard Weinberg and Donald Watt that Hitler wanted war over Poland with the British and French in September 1939? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, 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 I do. I don't agree with them. Um, I mean, all the evidence uh, that we have, and you know, I think we have all the evidence we're likely to get, makes it clear that you know, I mean, Hitler gambles, of course. But he really is convinced the British and French are washed up. Uh, decadent powers are not really, in the end, going to do much more than make a big fuss. Um, they're certainly not going to save Poland, which they don't, of course. Um, but, but he's convinced that he can uh, establish his new empire in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, while the British and French um, you know, will, in the end, do nothing. And for Hitler, I think the you know the idea is that the British and French already have empires, so why do they, why do they mind so much if he has one too? This is a naive, even deluded uh, view, but but that was really Hitler's view. And when the British and French declare war, he makes a speech to the um, to the um, German people. He says, you know, why are they making so much fuss about me taking over? Know, X square kilometers of territory, you know, when they dominate uh, a third of the globe. Um, I think he really did think he could get away with it. Why do you state that Anglo-French policy towards Japan, Italy, and Germany was not one of spineless abdication, uh, but, as you put it, one of, quote, containment and deterrence, unquote? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a you know, long, as you know, a long history to appeasement, um, and nobody has a good word to say for it. Uh, it, it I think that, that um, seeing uh, British and French policy as simply appeasement is extremely misleading. Um, you know, both powers, in fact, rearm extensively in the 1930s uh, to a level that they'd never rearmed to before in, in peacetime, um, partly as a, as a warning, a deterrent to uh, the Axis powers. Uh, there were moments where they came close to war, 
uh, with Italy in 1936 and again in 39. Um, at the Munich conference, which is always seen as the big sellout, one of the reasons Hitler backed down over invading Czechoslovakia was precisely because Chamberlain made it clear to him that you know, under those circumstances, you know, he would find himself at war. Um, so this is a, you know, I mean, deterrent and containment both failed, clearly, because Hitler invades Poland in the Second World War. Right? So, but I think that, that certainly Chamberlain thought that it was possible to find a strategy which would, you know, a flexible strategy, which would give Germany a bit of leeway and make it behave itself better uh, in the international arena. Um, but... You know, there came a point where Chamberlain too realised that you know it, it couldn't be done, and that you would have to prepare for war. And he does, you know, he thinks about that from early on in 1939, as to the French. Why did the French collapse so suddenly in the spring of 1940? Was it a question of morale or merely bad strat- bad tactics? Uh, well, this, as you know, is a much debated question. Um, I'm really, really, well, uh, morale was not high. Among German soldiers, morale was different because they are engaged in the war of revenge, revenge for 1918, and they're very fired up by that. Um, Whereas the French, of course, uh, having won the war in 1918, pretty reluctant to have to go and do it again. But the real problem was French strategy. Military strategy was utterly hopeless. Um, the idea that you can move into Belgium and then perhaps into Holland to stop the Germans, the complete failure of Allied intelligence and reconnaissance to understand about the uh, sickle cut um, attack through the Ardennes, so that uh, the, the cream of the British and the French armies were locked up in Belgium and the Netherlands, unable to contain the Germans as they approached, and uh, not realising that they were going to get a very large number of German armies behind them in a very short time. Uh, it's hard to imagine, actually, a greater degree of strategic misjudgment than the French strategy of 1940. Why was fascist Italy's military performance so abysmal? Um, well, again, lots of uh, explanations for that. Well, I mean, they were poorly armed. You know, most of the time they were fighting with weapons from the First World War earlier. Um, they were poorly armed. The you know, use of air power was uh, was very limited. Um, a, a great many Italian soldiers did indeed have very low morale. They didn't want to die in the desert for Mussolini, particularly. Um, and uh, you know, in the end, um, uh, Italian commanders had very little understanding about how to conduct modern mobile warfare, and that was evident in the desert. It's also evident in, in Ethiopia, which was reconquered by a, a small Commonwealth army in a very short period of time. Um, yeah, it's a mixture of strategic incompetence, low morale, uh, and poor equipment. Would it be true to say that you adhered to the idea that Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union was a mixture of opportunism and ideology? Well, it was opportunistic in the sense that, uh, you know, he'd now defeated uh, Western Europe and uh, um, and could now set about the, the, the larger task of creating this German empire in Eurasia, which he'd dreamt about for a long time, as many Germans had, not just Hitler, but many Germans had. Um, but it didn't seem possible in the 1930s. How far could he go? 
uh, the view to France meant that he could now go much further. And the threat posed by Stalin in Eastern Europe, as Stalin moved westward into the Baltic states and so on and so on, persuaded Hitler that this was the moment to strike. You had to do it now. Um, and, you know, he thought the Soviet system was, was rotten, corrupt, would fall over in, in no time at all. Um, but what he did want was the opportunity to turn uh, Ukraine and Western Russia into a German-dominated empire. Um, now, doing that would mean you get the resources necessary to fight the British Empire and if necessary the United States as well. Um, so there were plenty of opportunities available. I, I think that the ideological conflict is exaggerated. You know, really, the, the, the critical thing about Barbarossa is that here is Hitler deciding it's the moment to build the the rest of that German empire that so many Germans had dreamt about in the East uh, and to engross its resources so that Germany could become an economic superpower. Would it be correct to say that Operation Barbarossa was predicated on being able to replicate the Polish and French opera, uh, campaigns, so-called Blitzkrieg, against an enemy who was notably superior in numbers and who had the ability to trade space for time, something which was notably not true in the case of Poland or France. Yeah, no, it wasn't true for Poland or France, indeed. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a miscalculation, but it certainly was based on um, the success in Poland and in France. And also, also you have to look at how quickly uh, um, German armed forces defeated the Yugoslavs and the Greeks in the spring of, uh, of 1941, you know, if you needed more evidence about how effective the German armed forces were when in the field, that seemed to confirm it. Um, but also, I think, you know, it was a, a vast underestimation of the Soviet Union, a little understanding about what Stalin had achieved with the five-year plans, uh, and a, a kind of racial contempt for Slavs. The assumption was that, you know, that, you know once, once you'd entered uh, the Soviet Union, it was only a matter of time before the whole system crumbled. And people guessed it would be between two weeks, it might be six weeks, it might be a couple of months, as it was thought. But everybody thought it would be over in no time. Why for you was the Battle of Guadalcanal a more important battle than it seems uh, for you midway? Yes, well, I mean, that's probably I mean controversial. I think navalists would always say that midway was the more critical battle. Um, Midway didn't uh, really turn the tide. I mean, it did uh, cripple the Japanese carrier force. So the Japanese Navy was still huge, uh, and the American Navy was a long way from being uh, resupplied. Uh, the Japanese could still move at will around their, the perimeter of their big empire. Uh, the critical thing about Guadalcanal, I think, is that for the Japanese, it was a test of their strategy. The strategy was to build this perimeter, and then defend it, and they thought the Americans would lack the will, basically, to try and penetrate it. When they saw the, the um, amphibious operation in, in Guadalcanal, they thought they'd snuff it out in no time. Um, and there's no doubt that, you know, that, that forces were overwhelming on the Japanese side. You know, for the Americans, it was a, a, a difficult battle. But the Japanese made it a battle for their perimeter, they poured resources in, more resources than they'd used in the initial occupation of Southeast Asia and the Pacific. 
poor resources in. They had catastrophic losses, uh, all for a, a, a jungle island, you know, right, right at the very edge of their empire. So for the Japanese, it, it, it's assumed an extraordinary, for the Japanese military, it's assumed an extraordinary symbolic value. And the loss of Guadalcanal was taken by the Japanese, as, the Japanese military as a, as a real blow, as evidence that the strategy they favoured might not in the end work. Do you agree with Paul Kennedy's thesis in his newest book that it was American productive capability that decided the war in the Pacific? Uh, well, I half agree. Uh, I, I, I think you know, everywhere where people say, well, it was, you know, it was production that won, I, for example, uh, the battle on the Eastern Front, you know, that the Russians could outproduce the Germans in weapons and so on and so on. You know, simple production doesn't win battles. Um, you know, what wins battles is learning how to use that production effectively. Um, and, you know, for the Americans and for the British and for the Russians, all three Allied powers, there was a long learning curve where you had adequate supplies of weapons, but you had to work out how to use those weapons effectively. And, you know, for the Pacific War, production matters, but at the same time, you've really got to look at the way in which they develop, learn about and then develop amphibious warfare. How important that is in deciding the, the, the course of the Pacific War, and they got better and better at uh, amphibious warfare as the as the war went on. Yes, of course, they massively outproduced the Japanese. It was delusion on the part of the Japanese government that they could somehow survive against the United States. But production alone doesn't win wars. You have to be able to fight effectively. Why does uh, one make reference to the learning curve in the case of the Allies, but it, but not, it would appear, in the case of the German and the Japanese? Yeah, I mean, interesting question. Uh, I mean, I look at that bit in the book, and uh, really the problem was for the Germans and the Japanese, they thought they hadn't got much to learn. Uh, enormously successful in the early stages of their, of their war effort. Um, con uh, on the whole, a strong sense of contempt enemy soldiers. You know, the Germans always thought of themselves as superior to the Russian military. Uh, the Japanese thought the Americans would be too feeble um, to react to their imperialism. Um, and neither side rated the British at all. The Germans particularly thought the British were hopeless as soldiers. Uh, so there's a kind of arrogance about the German and Japanese military, their assumption that they didn't have much to learn. Of course, they are learning all the time. They're improving their technology. They're learning about tactics. They're thinking about how to fight. But they don't make the same kind of radical changes that the, that the Allied powers made. And once the Allied powers have made it, the balance between the two sides suddenly changed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. How good a general was Montgomery at El Alamein? Um, well, Montgomery, as you well know, uh, has had a mixed reception. 
Uh, people don't like his uh, acerbic, rather arrogant personality. But in fact, he made a huge difference at Alamein. I mean, you know, I have great respect for Montgomery. You know, he he was one of the few serious strategic thinkers on the British side. Um, and the important thing about Montgomery was he understood the limitations of the force he was fighting with. It wasn't a great army, um, but he knew how to get the most out of it. He was also, and I think this was, again, perhaps the first British general really to appreciate, uh, he was also very aware how important air power was in changing the battlefield of the Second World War. Uh, for him, air power was absolutely critical. And he integrated air power into uh, the British military effort the way that the other general had. Um, at D-Day, of course, he gets a lot of stick, particularly for Americans, I think, for, for you know, the slow start that the Allies made. But you know, they too underestimated, I think, just how good the German army would be dug into defence. Uh, and Montgomery then unhinged that defence and made it possible for the American breakout through Normandy um, and Brittany to the, to the west. Uh, I, I think that, that Montgomery um, deserves his reputation, I think, as an outstanding general. Uh, I'm not saying that just because I'm, I'm British, because uh, you know, that, that there are there are plenty of British generals that I don't think are particularly effective. Um, but when you look at the way in which he works in North Africa and in France, given the limitations of the Allied side, I think he was very effective. Was Operation Bragationen the finest military operation on the Allied side in the war? Well, um, it, it, that's difficult to say. I mean, it, it, is, a, it is a phenomenal battle defeating the cream, of the, what's left of the cream of the German army, army group centre uh, in a handful of weeks uh, comprehensively driving them uh, back uh, and inflicting the heaviest uh, defeat in terms of manpower equipment that the German army had yet suffered so from, from that point of view Bogotium certainly is or ranked perhaps as, as one of the most important, perhaps the most important battle uh, in, in the Second World War uh, but then we do need to look at, at, uh, at Normandy, we need to look at Kursk as well. Um, it would be nice to think that there is a similar battle in the war between Japan and China, but of course there isn't. Um, yeah, Bagration is an is a, a exceptional battle. Having said that, most people, certainly in the West, have never heard of it. You know, they heard of Stalingrad, some might have heard of Kursk, but... No, Bugatio has disappeared uh, as a reference point, I think, for Western audiences. And it needs to be rediscovered. Why was the Battle of Atlantic lost by the Germans and or won by the Allies? Well, the Battle of Atlantic uh, is again one of those battles I think that tends to be exaggerated, thanks partly to Churchill's view of it and his subsequent writing. Um, I mean, it was a threat. But actually, at no point did Britain really come close to to serious crisis in the supply of oil, goods, or food. Um, there were just simply not enough um, German submarines. Uh, there were too, or put it the other way around, there were just too many Allied ships. Um, but the, the the real problem was that that the Germans, by that stage, deep in in Russia, fighting a major land war. It's difficult to devote the effort necessary 
to fight a technical war in the Atlantic, whereas the Americans and the British immediately radar, for example, expanded radar research and production dramatically, uh, focused a great deal on uh, naval tactics to cope with the threat of a submarine. Uh, Hitler was never that interested, really, in the sea. Uh, he was really focused on the big battles in the, in the Eastern Front. And so, you know, in the end, it wasn't a sufficient priority for the Germans to be able to win that technical race either. So, so three things. It was always going to be a difficult battle to win for the Germans. They fell behind in the technical race, and the, the British and their allies uh, learned very quickly how to combat submarines effectively. Why was economic warfare by all the powers, from your perspective, a failure? Um, well, uh, I think I argue in the book that economic warfare, if you're talking about uh, logistics, about the supply of resources uh, between the different allied powers, was extremely successful. Uh, and indeed, you know, uh, logistics uh, was one of the key factors in the in the Allied victory. But economic warfare, in the sense that you could somehow, uh, if you applied the right pressure, undermine the enemy's war economy, was already shown during the First World War not to work. Blockade didn't work in stopping Germany from producing small weapons in 1918 than she had in 1914. The same with the bombing of Germany during the Second World War. She produced many, many more weapons under the peak bombing uh, in 1944 than she'd been producing in 1941. Uh, the one exception to that story, of course, is the economic strangulation of Japan. Now, Japan's economy was a fragile one anyway, uh, and with the onset of the American submarine war, the interdiction of supplies to Japan, uh, that was a blockade that, that worked effectively. Uh, the bombing of Japan added to that, but really the, the naval stranglehold established around uh, Japan by 1944-45 would, would have brought the Japanese war economy to a, to a halt. So it's a mixed story. Uh, Lend-lease was a successful thing. Uh, the blockade of Japan was successful. Bombing was a, a much more mixed story. It's, its results much less obvious. Uh, would it be true to say that you do not agree with Sir Francis Hinsley's thesis that Ultra helped to shorten the war by three years? Well, I think that's exaggerated too. You will have seen from my book that uh, I don't rate intelligence quite as highly, I think, as, uh, as many historians of intelligence do. Uh, yes, of course it was important, and useful to be privy to you know, much of what was going on in Japan and Germany. Though we need to remember that uh, they could also read uh, Allied codes for long periods of the war um, and could use those. Um, I think that the critical thing is not just ultra. The critical thing is the emphasis that the British and Americans put on intelligence, all kinds of intelligence, photo reconnaissance, low-level radio intercepts, uh, ultra, uh, all kinds of intelligence to build up a clear picture of what they needed to do and what enemy capability was. The Russians got much better at that too as the war went on. But in Germany and Japan, intelligence was always rated pretty lowly by the military authorities. They didn't give intelligence uh, the, the same 
a degree of uh, of resources that the Allies did, and they didn't always take much notice of what intelligence officers said. Um, so there's a there's a, a difference in practice, if you like, which perhaps helps to to exaggerate the extent to which Ultra and, and Allied intelligence was successful. Uh, but intelligence mattered, you know, and the Allies were better at it. How important was the war to the end of European empires? Isn't it not a bit post hoc to assign primary causation to the war itself? Uh, well, the war clearly was important because uh, the, the moral claims of the European powers uh, to to uh, you know be, had to have a civilizing mission in their empire that they were you know, empires were good for the people that were subjected to them was blown apart by the defeat of France and the expulsion of Britain from Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Um, there, it became clear uh, that that you know the empire you know, the days of empire were numbered. You couldn't. You come back and say, "Oh, we're well, very sorry. We lost our empire here, but can we have it back, please?" And of course, in India, in Burma, in Ceylon, in Sri Lanka, uh, in Indonesia, in Malaya, you know, the, the the local political forces said, "No, you know, we don't want you to come back." In Malaya, Indonesia, and Kenya, and Algeria, the British and the French fought vicious counterinsurgency wars to try and hold on to those areas, but they went as well within 20 years. So the war played an important part. And I do think it's important to remember that you know, nationalist aspirations are rising in all these states uh, between the wars. Uh, and it's unlikely, I think, that the European Empire would have lasted much longer, even without the kick that the Second World War gave them. In your discussion of empires after 1945, I noticed that you did not discuss Han Chinese imperialism inasmuch as Tibet, Xianqing, and Inner Mongolia are all lands which are held primarily by force. Yes, I mean, there's the same problem with so-called Soviet and American imperialism. Uh, I mean, you know, for China, of course, <coughs> uh, creating at last a unitary Chinese state, make, you know, re- restoring China as it was, as, as indeed they do. Um, you can call that imperialism. I mean, I think that, you know, as in the case of the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, of course, the priority was, by that stage, of course, was to spread communism. And uh, here were territories uh, which were historically Chinese, and the Chinese communist regime wanted to uh, establish communism as widely as it could, just as Stalin wanted to establish communism in Eastern Europe, rather than build a bunch of colonies. They're not colonies, they're integrated uh, Chinese integrated parts of a, a communist Chinese state in Eastern Europe, they're part of the Soviet bloc. Uh, these are hegemonic powers uh, exercising their hegemony on behalf of communism. Uh, America is a hegemonic power uh, and it interests are to combat communism and defend Western capitalism. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, Professor, what would it be? Well, it's probably naive to say that I would like people to read my book and say, you know, how a war is is a rotten thing. We should do everything we could to avoid ever having to go to war on this scale again. But I finished my book before Putin invaded Ukraine. And I'm very disappointed, of course, that, you know, we now have war in Europe again of a vicious kind and on quite a large scale. Um, 
and I thought we'd seen the back of that. I really did. Reading my book, I just hope, you know, enough people look at it and say, you know, well, whether you're on the winning or the losing side, you know, war itself is so damaging in every respect uh, that we should do everything we can to avoid ever repeating it on that kind of scale. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Overy, for being so kind as to speak with us today. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor, very, very much. Thank you.